I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the April 4th, 2022 issue, Season 1, Episode 9. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and addresses new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together not only to talk about what's new, but to reflect together on how all this new information ties in with what we've come to learn in the past. We'll also think carefully about where we're heading in the future as a hair loss community. I'll use various studies as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. Each week there'll be one or two topics that I may dive a little deeper into. These are topics that I'd really like you to know about, and for those who are training with me as part of the Donovan Hair Academy, these are essential topics. This week we'll dive a little bit deeper into the early studies addressing the relationship between the severity of balding and the severity of COVID-19 infection. And I'll also look at a number of studies from the past looking at whether stress is a trigger for alopecia areata. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The first Monday of each month is dedicated to the topics of androgenetic hair loss and alopecia areata, and today we'll be taking a look at seven studies from the past month or two in this particular area. We'll start out by talking about alopecia areata, and then we'll turn our attention to studies of androgenetic hair loss. In alopecia areata, we'll look at a fascinating report in the New England Journal that we've long been waiting for addressing baricitinib in advanced alopecia areata. How good is it? What are the side effects? Then we'll take a look at a study addressing stressful life events. Is stress indeed a trigger for alopecia areata? Then we'll look at the relationship between depression and anxiety and alopecia areata, and we'll talk about this emerging body of data showing this bi-directional relationship, meaning that depression and anxiety can trigger alopecia areata, and alopecia areata can affect depression and anxiety measures. Then we'll take a look at quality of life in alopecia areata. Is simply looking at the amount of hair loss on the scalp a good predictor of how patients feel about their hair loss? We'll see that it's not and we'll look at three measures. We'll look at the patient's perception of their hair loss as an important measure of quality of life and the loss of eyebrows and eyelashes as also an important measure of quality of life. These are really important studies that are changing the way we think about the severity of a person's alopecia areata. And then we'll take a look at three recent studies addressing how the severity of androgenetic hair loss predicts the potential severity of COVID-19 infection. The references for all these studies I'll be talking about today are found in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin by looking at studies of alopecia areata. And we'll begin first with a phase three trial with the use of the JAK inhibitor baricitinib. Many of us are using JAK inhibitors in the clinic. Tofacitinib, ruxolitinib, baricitinib, these are among the more commonly used JAK inhibitors for alopecia areata. There are a wide variety of JAK inhibitors that are being studied and are used in other types of diseases. 
Baricitinib is a JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor. It's FDA approved for treating rheumatoid arthritis. It is among the JAK inhibitors that are used in alopecia areata and are showing to be helpful. And so the BRAVE AA trials are clinical trials looking at the role of baricitinib in alopecia areata. The BRAVE AA1 and the BRAVE AA2 clinical trials are clinical trials of adults with severe alopecia areata. And by severe alopecia areata, we mean SALT scores of 50 or higher. And if you're not familiar with what a SALT score is, a SALT score of 100 means complete hair loss. A SALT score of 0 means complete hair growth. And so these are patients with a SALT score of 50 or higher, and the BRAVE trials are specifically looking at baricitinib. Patients were randomized in a 3 to 2 to 2 method, looking at baricitinib at 4 milligrams, baricitinib at 2 milligrams, and placebo. And the primary endpoint was what proportion of patients achieved a SALT score of 20 at week 36. SALT score of 20 or less at week 36. And a SALT score of 20 in the alopecia world is determined to be a SALT score that is pretty significant coverage. There still is hair loss in someone with a SALT score of 20, but it's deemed to be pretty significant coverage and is often a reasonable endpoint for trials to look at. This particular trial had a number of secondary endpoints. The authors looked at what proportion of patients had SALT scores less than 10, what proportion of patients had improvements in eyebrows and eyelashes, and what were the uh, results at weeks 16, 24, and 36. So there was a whole number of secondary endpoints in this trial. But the primary endpoint was what proportion of patients had a SALT score of 20 or less at week 36. And so what were the results? Well, the BRAVE AA1 trial recruited 654 patients. There was 598 patients that completed the study about 90%. The BRAVE AA2 study had 546 patients enrolled, 490 completed, again about 89%. About 45 to 50% of patients in these studies had alopecia universalis, and about 50 to 55% had quite advanced forms of alopecia areata. So this is important because what I particularly like about this trial is it's recruiting patients with pretty significant hair loss. They all had SALT scores of 50 or more, but there was a significant number of patients in this study with advanced hair loss. The mean duration of alopecia areata was 3.6 years in the BRAVE AA1 and 4.3 years in the BRAVE AA2. And so, you know, the inclusion criteria for this study was patients with a SALT score of 50 or higher, but they had to have hair loss for six months or more less than eight years. They could have hair loss more than eight years if they were having regrowth and loss and regrowth and loss. Uh, but generally, most patients had hair loss duration between six months and eight years. Of course, they couldn't be on any other sorts of medications. 30 to 40 percent of patients had alopecia areata for more than four years. Most patients were either white or of Asian background. 
7 to 10% of patients in this study were black. So what were the results? Again, the primary endpoint is the proportion of patients achieving a SALT score of 20 or less at week 36. While in the BRAVE AA1 trial, 38.8% of patients using 4 milligrams baricitinib achieved a SALT score of less than 20. In the BRAVE AA2 trial, 35.9% achieved a SALT score of less than 20. And in the placebo group, 6.2% and 3.3% respectively achieved a SALT score of less than 20. Of all these secondary endpoints, again, there was a large number of these secondary endpoints that the authors also wanted to look at. The 4 milligram dose of baricitinib was clearly better than 2 milligrams. In the BRAVE AA1 study of 598 patients, 4 milligrams of baricitinib differed from placebo in most of these secondary endpoints. In the BRAVE AA2 trial of 490 patients, the 4 milligram baricitinib differed from placebo for many of the secondary endpoints, but not all. One of the secondary endpoints that I particularly liked was the SALT score of less than 10 at 36 weeks. What proportion of patients achieve an outstanding result? A SALT score of 20 or less is very good, but a SALT score of less than 10 is a pretty tough outcome to achieve. And in this study, about a quarter of patients achieved a SALT score of less than 10 at 36 weeks. Side effects were generally mild to moderate in most patients, but not all. The percentage of patients that dropped out because of adverse events was low and was similar in the placebo and the 2 milligram and the 4 milligram baricitinib group. The common side effects were acne, about 5%, upper respiratory tract infections, headaches, urinary tract infections in about 5% of patients, increased LDL cholesterol, in about a quarter of patients, elevated creatinine kinase. Herpes zoster is a side effect which is known to be increased in JAK inhibitor uh, using patients, and there was an increased risk of zoster. Anywhere from 1.3 to 1.9% of patients had zoster, and that was higher in baricitinib users than placebo. Serious side effects occurred in about 2% using 4 milligrams and 1.6 using placebo in the BRAVE AA1 trial. Serious side effects occurred in 3.4% of patients using 4 milligrams in the BRAVE AA2 trial compared to 1.9% of placebo. One patient had a heart attack. He was felt to have cardiovascular risk factors before. One patient had CHF. There was a small number of patients with other side effects as well. But overall, most patients had uh, reasonable side effects. So the overall conclusion was that 4 milligrams of baricitinib is better than 2 milligrams, and about a third of patients using 4 milligrams of baricitinib will achieve some pretty good results, and about a quarter of patients will achieve outstanding results. And so I think this is a very nice study. This is a phase 3 trial, so this is a very important trial for the makers of baricitinib. This is data that they hope to present to the uh, FDA an accumulating body of data to support the use of this medication. The race is on for the first JAK inhibitor or the first drug approved for alopecia areata. And I think those days are just around the corner. And it's a pretty exciting time in the alopecia areata world 
these drugs don't cure alopecia areata. These drugs don't lead to hair growth in all patients with alopecia areata, but they're a step forward. And about a third of patients with significant alopecia areata will have some pretty good results. One out of every four patients will have some outstanding results. And so this is a, a step forward. These drugs long-term might be safer than our current medications, probably a lot safer than high doses of prednisone, probably safer than methotrexate. But there are some really important issues that this trial and, and trials in general in alopecia areata need to address. This trial is largely focused on salt scores and the amount of hair growth that's achieved. We don't really understand how these trial results affect quality of life. What do patients think of these results? Do patients think that these results are significant? Uh, are they pleased with these particular results in terms of having an, a change in quality of life? Of course, a large percentage of patients will. 33% or so of patients have a SALT score of 20 or less, and a quarter have SALT scores of 10 or less. So clearly a large percentage of patients uh, are going to be very pleased with res these results, but we, this study doesn't address quality of life. And we do not know long-term side effects, and I think this is really an important issue. The JAK inhibitors have a black box warning. The FDA said that all JAK inhibitors have to carry a, a boxed warning. As I reviewed a couple of weeks ago, JAK inhibitors in rheumatoid arthritis patients, particularly tofacitinib, increase the risk of cardiovascular disease and cancer in patients that are older and in patients with cardiovascular risk factors to begin with. But the FDA said that this uh, black box warning needs to be put on all JAK inhibitors. Now, this particular trial didn't address these long-term side effects. It's, it's a study that goes to 36 weeks. It's not a study that goes to 8 years. It's not a study that goes to 20 years. The authors of this study really didn't address the black box warning in their discussion. And I think this is important. I think clinical trials of uh, JAK inhibitors really need to make mention to that. I think we all need to be aware of that moving forward. The risks of cardiovascular disease and cancer certainly may be very different in alopecia areata. These are younger patients, these are healthier patients, but I think we need to keep that in mind, and, and this study didn't make reference to that, although it did make inferences to it. Uh, the authors tell us that no patient in this study had a blood clot, thrombosis. The study's not long enough to really look at cancer risks, so we really can't make any conclusions. The authors mentioned to us that they're continuing studies out to four years, so I think that's really important. But we do need to keep that in mind. Um, the risk of cancer, the risk of cardiovascular disease, what is it? And are there any patients we really need to be following long-term? Is it different when you put a patient that's 12 years old on a JAK inhibitor versus 18 years old on a JAK inhibitor versus 30 years old on a JAK inhibitor versus 58 years old on a JAK inhibitor? There might be. Is there a difference when we put a 58-year-old person on a JAK inhibitor whose dad had cardiovascular disease and passed away at 51, and the patient themselves has high cholesterol and high blood pressure? It might, compared to an 18-year-old patient who's super healthy with no risks of significance. Super important study. So happy to see this baricitinib study published. Really important progress in our field. The days are numbered before we hear the very first drug approved for alopecia areata, and that'll be a very exciting day. There's been a tremendous amount of research in alopecia areata, and we are moving forward. 
albeit slowly, but we're moving forward and we have new options for patients with alopecia areata and the lives of patients with alopecia areata are changing on account of these medications that we have. So stay tuned. The first drug approved for F for alopecia areata is not too far into the future. So from baricitinib, we turn to the topic of stress. What do you say to patients when they ask, does stress cause alopecia areata? You know, there are some of my colleagues that feel that stress doesn't impact alopecia areata. I think it's pretty clear that stress impacts alopecia areata. It may not be an incredibly strong risk factor in all cases. I think the data is pretty clear. So I'd like to take a look at a study which addresses the relationship between stress and stressful life events and the onset of alopecia areata. Let's look at some prior studies before we dive into this particular study. A study in 2011 showed that compared to patients without alopecia areata, patients with alopecia areata have more stressful life events. Another study showed that children are more likely to have stressful life events before their alopecia areata compared to children without alopecia areata. A study in 2007 showed that compared to patients without alopecia areata, patients with alopecia areata have more stressful life events before the onset of their hair loss and are more likely to report various family problems before the onset of hair loss. Willemson in 2009 showed that Patients with alopecia areata have more total traumatic life events and more total childhood traumatic life events compared to those without alopecia areata. Levinson in 2008 showed that 66% of patients with alopecia areata have stressful life events before their first episode compared to 22% of controls. Bryak and colleagues in 2003 showed that patients with alopecia areata have a greater number of stressful life events in the preceding six months compared to those in a control group. So I think there's a large amount of data sitting there in the literature that, stre- that says stressful life events are greater in patients with alopecia areata before their hair loss starts. And so stress is probably very, very relevant. Fenatinos and colleagues in the March issue of the JAD again looked at this issue of stressful life events in patients with alopecia areata. They set out to evaluate the association of stressful life events with the development of alopecia areata. They studied patients over a three-year period. There was 52 patients with alopecia areata and 51 controls. They used a variety of scales to assess mental health measures, including the Holmes-Rahi Uh, social readjustment scale, the hospital anxiety depression scale, the brief illness perceptions questionnaire, the BIPQ, and the dermatology life quality index DLQI. Patients with alopecia areata reported significantly more stressful life events leading up to their alopecia areata than controls. Not a large study, but they were able to detect a difference despite not being a large study. The presence of alopecia areata was significantly associated with the number of stressful life events and the impact that these stressful life events had on their mental health. What types of stressful life events were thought to be triggers? Well, personal injury or personal illness was thought to be a significant trigger and changes in sleeping habits. So overall, the authors concluded that stressful life events are indeed a trigger for alopecia areata. Might not be a strong link, it seemed to be a link. It adds to this body of literature 
These eight or nine studies that I reviewed just a few minutes ago that suggest that stressful life events are probably a trigger. Clearly, it's not a trigger for everyone, but it's a factor to consider. In this study, the number of stressful events and their overall impact affected the chances of alopecia areata. So what do we say to a patient who comes in 54 years of age and says, you know, it's been a stressful time. My daughter's been in the hospital. She was very sick. She's, you know, she's going to make it, but these were pretty tough times. I've got this patch of alopecia areata. Do you think it's related, doc? Well, you want to dive into literature yourself and convince yourself, but I think it's pretty clear that pretty intense stress can be a trigger for alopecia areata in some patients. It can be pretty hard to prove. It's not a direct link in all patients. It's not clear-cut, but it's a link. There is a suggestion that intense stress like this is a trigger for alopecia areata, and we see it in the clinic all the time. And certainly I tell my patients that it may be related. Let's move on to a study in the British Journal of Dermatology from February. Are you aware of this so-called bi-directional relationship between depression and anxiety and alopecia areata? In other words, are you aware of the growing literature that depression and anxiety can trigger alopecia areata or be associated with a risk for alopecia areata? And are you aware that alopecia areata can impact the chances of developing depression and anxiety? So let's take a look at this important study by Macbeth and colleagues. We know that the risk of depression and anxiety are increased in those with alopecia areata. A 2012 case control study by Chu and colleagues showed pretty clearly that the prevalence of anxiety and depression is increased in those with alopecia areata compared to controls. A 2019 study by Valorand and colleagues identified this bi-directional relationship. In other words, that depression and anxiety can increase the risk that a person will develop alopecia areata, and that alopecia areata can increase the risk of depression and anxiety. And other studies have also showed this bi-directional relationship more recently as well. So the authors from the UK set out to address the risk of depression and anxiety in adults with alopecia areata compared to controls. The research wanted to evaluate this bi-directional relationship, and they also wanted to address the mental health burden of alopecia areata and how it affects the time that patients take off from work and their employment status. Are patients with alopecia areata more likely to need time away from work, and are they more likely to be unemployed? So they used this Oxford Royal College of General Practitioners RCGP database this is a very important database in the UK, a huge database which is thought to be representative of patients in the UK, where they can look into a whole bunch of epidemiologic data. It's a very powerful database. We've talked about this database in the preceding months as well. Many of these fantastic UK alopecia areata studies dive into this database to harness data. There was 5,000 435 alopecia areata patients, and 21,740 controls without alopecia areata. The mean age was 39, 54% of females, and this was felt to be similar in cases and controls. The study showed that patients with alopecia areata were more likely to have pre-existing depression and anxiety compared to controls. So before their alopecia areata started, they were more likely to have background uh, depression and anxiety. 
12.3% of patients had recurrent depressive disorder before their alopecia areata. 19.4% had depressive episodes. 16.6% had anxiety. And this is, again, before their first episode of alopecia areata. And this was higher than control patients. Within the first two years of receiving a diagnosis of alopecia areata, the authors showed that there was an increased risk of patients with alopecia areata going on to develop depression and anxiety. In fact, there was a 30 to 38% increased risk of depression and anxiety. When we look at the risk of recurrent depressive disorders, about 3.5% of patients with alopecia areata reported recurrent depressive disorder in the first two years. This was 30% higher than the control group. 3.1% of patients had a depressive episode. This was 38% higher than the control group. And 3.6% of patients had anxiety within the first two years. And this was 33% higher than the control group. When we look at time off work within the first year of diagnosis, 13% of patients needed time off work compared to 7.9% of controls, and this was 56% higher than the control group. 1.3% of patients with alopecia areata were unemployed within the first year of diagnosis compared to 0.6% of controls, and this represented a 52% increase in the unemployment rate in patients with alopecia areata compared to controls. There was a higher rate of antidepressant prescribing in patients with alopecia areata compared to controls, and interestingly, less than 10% of patients with a mental health issue were referred for non-pharmacologic management. So overall, the conclusion here was that patients with alopecia areata have higher rates of depression and anxiety compared to those without alopecia areata. There is higher rates of anxiety and depression after a diagnosis, but higher rates of anxiety and depression before the diagnosis as well, and higher rates of unemployment and higher rates of needing time off work. And so here the authors propose that we really need improved strategies to help patients with alopecia areata address the uh, burden of anxiety and depression, as well as strategies to uh, help in all of these domains, including various employment issues as well. So a really helpful study which highlights further this bi-directional relationship between depression and anxiety, and I really liked this study. Like all good studies, it really sets up important questions for the future. Do patients with alopecia areata find that treatment of the alopecia areata impacts their depression and anxiety? Does treating alopecia areata with whatever it is, steroid injections, systemic medications like JAK inhibitors, does this impact the depression and anxiety? Does treatment for anxiety and depression help grow hair? That's an important question for the future as well, and one that's been addressed before. And if you're not aware of some of the literature in the past looking at the use of tricyclic antidepressants like imipramine, paroxetine, citalopram, those are two SSRIs, studies have shown in the past that patients with alopecia areata that are put on tricyclics or SSRIs have an improved chance 
of hair growth if they have depression and anxiety. And so those are very important studies to be aware of, and that ties in with this literature. Does treating anxiety and depression help alopecia areata? Well, it might, and those studies are needed. What treatment approaches are better? Is pharmacologic approaches better than non-pharmacological approaches like counseling, psychotherapy, other methods of non-drug interventions? We don't know. Are both the way to go? Are there any medications that worsen depression and anxiety and alopecia areata? We don't know. Certainly high doses of steroids can certainly impact depression and anxiety in patients with alopecia areata, but fortunately we don't usually use systemic steroids for all that long. And what are the barriers to recognize the mental health issues in patients with alopecia areata and to connect patients with mental health professionals? Do all practitioners who see patients with alopecia areata address depression and anxiety? Are we bringing up these subjects? Are we helping patients with these issues? These are clearly issues for the future. We move now to another study looking at quality of life in patients with alopecia areata. Are we very good as practitioners at predicting how a patient's doing and how they feel about their hair loss? Well, studies in the past tell us that, you know, we're not really all that good. We tend to look at the amount of hair loss on the scalp and use that as our basic measure of predicting how a patient's doing. If a patient has a lot of hair loss, we generally feel they must be pretty impacted. If a patient doesn't have much hair loss, we generally feel they must be doing okay. And studies have taught us that that's really not very correlative, and that's not really a very good way of predicting quality of life. And so what are the factors that predict quality of life? That, that was an important objective by Dr. Senna and colleagues. We know alopecia areata affects the way patients feel about themselves. A 2016 meta-analysis by Liu and colleagues showed that the impact of alopecia areata is similar to other conditions with significant disease burden, including atopic dermatitis and psoriasis. It's very well accepted that alopecia areata can impact depression and anxiety and self-esteem and sleeping. And it's becoming increasingly clear that simply looking at the amount of hair loss on the scalp doesn't really predict very well quality of life. And so other factors are clearly relevant, and we need to dive into all these other factors that impact how patients feel that, about their alopecia areata. For example, a patient with 30% scalp hair loss but loss of the eyebrows and the eyelashes might actually feel that their alopecia areata impacts them more than someone with 70% hair loss, but no eyebrow or eyelash loss. Someone with 30% scalp hair loss might feel that by growing the hair long, they can cover their hair loss, or they might feel that they can wear a hairpiece and they can cover it. It doesn't improve life to a full extent, but they might feel that they can camouflage their hair loss fairly well but it's the eyebrow and eyelash loss that they feel really impacts the way they go about their day and the way they present themselves to the world. And so clearly other measures are needed, and Dr. Senna's study really looks into that. This was a study of 259 patients. They were surveyed for various demographics and characteristics, and Dr. Senna and colleagues used various indices, including the Skindex 16AA 
and the Work Productivity Activity Impairment Scale, WPAI. The mean age of patients was 39, about half of patients were male. Nearly all patients, 96% had scalp hair loss, 20% had eyebrow loss, 14% had eyelash loss, and there were various other areas of hair loss affected as well. 21% of patients rated their alopecia areata as mild, 54 rated it as moderate, and 25 rated it as severe. What were the results? Well, interestingly, the degree that physicians rated the hair loss, or the SALT score, this measure that we all use to kind of give a score to how much hair loss a patient has, was not predictive of quality of life. So what was? Well, the patient's self-reporting of their hair loss was predictive of how they felt about their hair loss. So if patients felt, I think my hair loss is moderate to severe, this was a predictor of quality of life. Females were more impacted than males, and patients with eyebrows and eyelash loss were more likely to report changes in quality of life. So I really like this study. It really adds to the growing body of literature that as we think about how alopecia affects patients, we got to do more than measure SALT scores. We have to ask patients. We have to talk to patients. So all in all, this study concluded that the presence of eyebrow and eyelash loss is correlated with more severe impact on quality of life, and the patient's view of their hair loss severity also correlates well with changes in quality of life. So I think this is a really nice study. It reminds us that there's more to evaluating how someone's alopecia areata affects them than simply measuring the number of hair follicles on the scalp. Patients who feel that their hair loss is moderate or severe, and that's the way they feel about their own hair loss, are more likely to be impacted, no matter what the SALT score is. And I think this particular study is one of a number of studies that are now emerging, telling us that we need to evaluate more than just SALT score as we go about thinking about alopecia areata, and that patients that feel that their hair loss is severe certainly need to be taken very seriously. Patients with eyebrow and eyelash loss also may form a group of patients that really are impacted significantly by their hair loss. The reason that's so important is if a patient has minimal hair loss on the scalp, but they have eyebrow and eyelash loss, this study reminds us that this correlates with more significant hair loss in terms of the way it impacts the patient. And even though they don't have 60, 70, or 80% hair loss, this may be a reason to be thinking about more aggressive type treatments in order that we can get hair growing and try to improve the quality of life that patient experiences. And so I think in the future, clearly we're going to be measuring more than just SALT scores, how much hair loss is present on the scalp. In the future, we're going to need to incorporate measures of how patients feel about their hair loss themselves, and we're going to have to incorporate eyebrow and eyelash loss as well, and perhaps other measures as well, like nail changes. So from alopecia areata, let's turn now to androgenetic hair loss and some important studies addressing the severity of androgenetic hair loss 
and COVID-19 severity. So there's three recent studies that I'd like to review with you in this particular regard. But before I do that, I'd like to take you back two years to some fundamental studies in this area as the COVID pandemic was unfolding. Gorin and colleagues really led the way, this group in Spain really led the way with some early studies, controversial studies at that time, in terms of what male balding means to COVID-19 severity. And so early studies, including this study by Gorin and colleagues, set out to look at the prevalence of androgenetic hair loss amongst COVID-19 patients. They looked at 41 patients, the mean age was 58, and 71% of patients had a Hamilton Norwood's balding score of three or more. And the authors looked at the population itself and figured that amongst these 41 patients, they would have predicted that 31 to 53% of patients should have advanced balding. But they observed 71% of patients that had COVID-19 with advanced balding. And so the authors proposed that, hmm, maybe male balding is in fact a risk factor for COVID-19. This was a controversial study at the time, but it led the way to a number of other studies. Wambier and colleagues was a study that followed that Gorin et al. study by the same authors in Spain, looking at a larger number of patients instead of 41. They looked at 175 patients, but they found the same data, and that is that, in fact, androgenetic hair loss, whether male or female, is, in fact, a risk factor for a more severe COVID-19. The authors went on to show that maybe blocking androgens with anti-androgens has some positive effects. They showed that male patients that were on anti-androgens had a reduced chance of going into the ICU or the intensive care unit compared to those who were not on anti-androgens. After this, a number of other groups also published studies showing that, yes, male balding is in fact a risk factor for severe COVID-19, and other studies showed in 2021 that female patients with hyperandrogenism or female patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome were also at increased risk for more severe outcomes with COVID-19. And so the story continued to unfold from this preliminary observation by Dr. Gorin and colleagues and this group in Spain. And so I'd like to bring you up to date on where we are in the last month or two. There's three studies that have been published Again, addressing this concept, is severe balding a risk factor for severe outcomes with COVID-19? So Gafur and colleagues recently published a study in March 2022 looking at the relationship between balding and COVID-19. So the authors set out to look at the association between androgenetic hair loss and the severity of COVID-19 in 300 patients in Karachi, Pakistan. Patients were recruited with both genders. They were between 20 and 80 years of age, and they had confirmed cases of COVID-19. And so out of these 300 patients, 73% were male, 26% were female. And of the male patients, most had androgenetic hair loss. 20% had more mild balding, and 
80% had more significant balding, 46% of females had androgenetic hair loss, 24% had more mild hair loss, and 75% had more significant hair loss. So what were the results? Well, the authors concluded that males with more severe androgenetic hair loss were more likely to have worse outcomes. They didn't see the same pattern in female patients, but overall they pointed out that young male patients that had more severe, severe balding were often very affected by COVID-19 and often had poor outcomes. And so their conclusions here were that indeed male balding is a risk factor for severe COVID-19 outcomes. Bagani and colleagues was a study from Iran which showed that male balding wasn't a clear risk factor for severe outcomes with COVID-19. And so this study is in contrast to some of the other studies, but not all the studies to date have shown that male balding is a risk factor. This was a study of 164 patients with COVID-19 that were hospitalized. 70% were males, 29% were females. Men had a lower age compared to women. In this study, androgenetic hair loss was more severe in males than in females, but there was no significant difference between COVID-19 severity and balding in male patients. The authors did find that the severity of hair loss was associated with COVID-19 severity in female patients, but it was a very small number of patients with severe COVID-19 in this study, and it made the data a little bit more unreliable. And so it's difficult to know what to make of that data, but certainly suggesting a possible trend but for male patients, did not suggest that male balding was strongly correlated with COVID-19 severity. The final study is a study, again, looking at COVID-19 severity with balding, but this time in patients with more severe COVID-19 needing oxygen. And so this was a study from Serbia. It was an observational cross-sectional study looking at patients that were more ill in Serbia in 2020. So they analyzed hospitalized COVID-19 patients needing oxygen. These were male patients. They looked at the length of hospitalizations, the outcomes, the type of, of oxygen they needed, and any comorbidities. They categorized the male patients into four groups according to their hair loss. Group one had no hair loss. Group two was early staged hair loss the Hamilton-Norwood scale, 2, 3, 3A, and 4A. Group 3 was group uh, three was the Hamilton-Norwood 3V stage, so now we're getting into vertex hair loss, and group 4 was stage 4, 5, 5A, 6, and 7. Patients with more advanced hair loss, but also with vertex hair loss. And they grouped the group 3 and group 4 patients together and they said that these patients were GABRIN-positive patients. The GABRIN-positive group was any male patient that had more advanced hair loss, especially vertex hair loss. Dr. GABRIN was a physician, an emergency room physician, and one of the first U.S. physicians to die of COVID-19. And so this term, the GABRIN sign, is used in our hair loss literature in honor of Dr. Gabbard, and it, it denotes a patient with male balding, more advanced male balding. And so in this study, there was 208 male patients. Death occurred in 
a quarter of patients. The average age was 77. Again, these were patients needing oxygen, so they were a little bit sicker patients. There was no statistically significant difference in outcomes, according to Balding, in the type of oxygen therapy needed. However, when the authors looked at GABRIN-positive patients compared to GABRIN-negative patients, in other words, patients with more advanced balding compared to patients with less advanced balding, there was higher mortality in GABRIN-positive patients. And so the conclusion here was that, indeed, more severe balding does predict more severe outcomes from COVID-19. And so that's it for this week. We've reviewed seven studies, including four studies in alopecia areata and three studies in androgenetic hair loss. We talked about baricitinib in more advanced alopecia areata and these phase three studies published in the New England Journal highlighting that baricitinib helps about a third of patients with more advanced alopecia areata and helps about one quarter of patients very, very significantly. Stressful life events appear to be a trigger for alopecia areata, and we talked about a host of literature in the past addressing this important subject of does stress trigger alopecia areata? And we have a new study here to add to that literature. We talked about the bi-directional relationship between depression and anxiety and alopecia areata, and the fact that alopecia areata can be associated with depression and anxiety. We talked about an important study by Dr. Senna and colleagues looking at quality of life and the fact that the SALT score itself, simply looking at a patient's scalp and figuring out how much hair loss they have, doesn't really predict quality of life all that well. However, if you ask patients about how they think about their severity and if you measure eyebrow and eyelash loss, you can get a much better prediction of the way they feel about their hair loss. And so really future measures of alopecia areata are going to need to incorporate patients' views and they're going to need to incorporate eyebrow and eyelash loss. We talked about COVID-19 severity and this accumulating body of literature suggesting that advanced androgenetic hair loss is a risk factor for more severe outcomes with COVID-19. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Evidence-Based Hair. Please subscribe. This will allow more listeners to connect with the Evidence-Based Hair podcast. If you'd like to connect with our office at any time to learn more about our training programs or just to drop us a line, please do so. We're at info at donovanhairacademy.com. Next week, we're back for the second Monday of the month of April, and we're talking about the four T's, traction alopecia, telogen effluvium, trichotillomania, and tinea capitis. And I'll look forward to welcoming you back here on Evidence-Based Hair. <laughs>